Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Is there a paranormal factor in psychotherapy? What do you do when things in the room start moving during a session with a patient? What is projective identification? Hello and welcome to the 826th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those moving questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. Uh, today we welcome a distinguished guest on a new subject, and uh, we welcome your calls. The number to call is 401-766-1240. That is from anywhere. Or you can email paul at behindtheparanormal.com or contact us via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Dr. Paul J. <clears throat> excuse me, Dr. Paul J. Leslie is a licensed psychotherapist and educator with a great interest in the history and folklore of the South Carolina Low Country. The author of six books that I know of, he has extensive <clears throat> seven now he has extensive experience in creative approaches to working with clients, and presents workshops to other mental health professionals nationally and internationally. His books include Low Country Shamanism, an exploration of the magical and healing practices of the coastal Carolinas and Georgia. His latest book, the subject of our show today, is Shadows in the Session, The Presence of the Anomalous in Psychotherapy. His website, drpaulleslie.com. So, Dr. Paul Leslie, welcome to Behind the Paranormal, or welcome back, I should say. Yeah, well, thanks, guys. It's always a pleasure to be with you both. Oh, well, it's great to have you back. So, in the book, uh, you give us a sort of new, sort of a history on this subject from the viewpoint of the people, of people like Carl Jung and Melanie Klein. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, this, uh, the, the whole premise of the, the book is that I was finding a lot of, um, hidden stories and, um, experiences that, uh, some psychotherapists were having while they were in session with uh, certain clients. Uh, it's not something that happens all the time, and I'll even say it rarely happens. But uh, these uh, experiences, which I label as anomalous experiences, but some people may call paranormal, uh, would be quite uh, frightening, striking, um, disarming, confusing. And there's a kind of bit of a conspiracy of silence about uh, these things. So I thought it might be a good idea to uh, look back throughout the history of psychotherapy. And what I found was that even from the early beginnings of our field, this is a topic, uh, the anomalous is a topic we've grappled with. We don't know what to do with it. Uh, we, when it shows up, uh, a lot of times uh, as a field, we find it's best to ignore it, dismiss it. Um, demonize it, you know, whatever it is, so that uh, it's not being uh, explored as I think it it could be. I I don't know why this is. Maybe it is because we we all want to protect our uh, professional standing, or maybe it's just something that's an uncomfortable subject uh, to explore. But uh, it really uh, set me on a path to figure out, you know, not just why this is happening, but so much as you know. How do people deal with these things when they do occur? Well, you know, one of the things that that struck me too, and, and you mentioned this in the book as well, is in the history, is that uh, <clears throat> what was gr- when when the science of psychology was growing in the 19th century, uh, and uh, and uh, of course psychotherapy coming from that. Uh, also, what was growing was spiritualism. And what was generally referred to as psychical research, 
And uh, there are some interesting parallels there. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. It, what's really interesting for me is uh, when we go back and we we really delve into the history, early history of the field of psychology. And a lot of people technically put the the date of the founding of psychology in 1879 when uh, Wilhelm Wundt, uh, who uh, in German Germany opened the first um, laboratory to uh, study psychology. So it's a fairly new discipline. Although there is quite a bit of debate because uh, it turns out uh, William James, who's the, uh, we, we consider him the father of American psychology, was teaching psychology and I think had a lab at Harvard in 1876. So the question is, why does Vont get the uh, the father of psychology label and, and our American hero, William James, didn't? Well, a lot of it is because William James, in addition to the many other brilliant things he did, he had an active interest in studying from a psychological perspective what we refer to as psychical research. And psychical research started as a um, way to uh, test uh, and, and examine a lot of claims that were coming out of the spiritualist movement. If people aren't familiar with that, that uh, kind of started uh, in the mid-1800s uh, with the, the Fox sisters, who were these two um, uh, young girls in upstate New York who was, were having uh, what they claim spirit interactions with the uh, the uh, deceased resident of the home they lived in, and that created a uh, kind of a nationwide uh, interest in uh, mediumship and, and things of that nature. So it would uh, only you know stand to reason that in time uh, some people in the field of the new field of psychology would say well if something's happening and it involves the human mind maybe we need to test it and explore it but the problem was that just by giving it any attention some people got a lot much like today got a lot of grief got a lot of uh, character uh, assassination uh, minimized uh, in their own field and I think that's what some of the things that happened to uh, William James. Uh, so it, what's also interesting to me is I found that in the first two international congresses on psychology, half of the presentations on those first two involved psychical research. Hmm. So we had very educated uh, people, not just from the field of psychology, but um, all kinds of scientific endeavors who were actively exploring this and it just seemed after about the third Congress of Psychology, there was a intentional phasing out of that topic. Uh, this, this, to me, this is unfortunate because I think that by uh, at least opening our mind to studying something, we don't have to agree on the etiology, you know, where it comes from or what it is, but at least to study that, that something's there. So there has been this history, much like today, a, a, a back and forth between uh, the more materialistic view of, of science and then those who uh, view other realms, if we should say, call it that. You know, it's really interesting that you kind of you kind of mentioned that uh, in in your in your book in the 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 first chapter, sort of discussing the unknown. You kind of bring it into into the present and talk about well, I guess technically it's not the present because it was 2019, but right. uh, in in the previous in the previous year that it seems as if there's a a, a growing interest in in sort of psychical phenomena 
versus, you know, going to traditional therapy sessions. And do you find that this sort of trend of sort of balance, not even really a balance, but kind of one to two extremes hasn't really changed that much? Because it seems as if there there is... I, it's it's interesting that there's sort of like a light stigma that's that's perpetrated by society that going to you know see a therapist or whatever, and but for some reason it's there's really not much stigma sort of hanging around that of going to see a psychic or whatever. Now would would you be able to comment on that at all? Yeah, I think uh, you know I, there's always going to be stigma um, about therapy, and I think there there will always be some you know scoffers and stigma. Uh, of going to see a, a psychic, but uh, the research is showing that more and more people are turning uh, to psychics and mediums uh, for help with uh, problems that they may have traditionally sought uh, psychotherapy for. Our field has a field of psychotherapy has, without a doubt, empirically shown that we help. We can help alleviate emotional suffering. But in spite of that, uh, people feel more uh, uh, drawn sometimes to uh, to talk to a psychic or have uh, other explanations for uh, human behavior or situations they find themselves in that's out of the realm of what has become a, a more scientific look at uh, people's thoughts uh, behavior and emotion. So I, I, I see incredible parallels, almost a circular repeat of the late 1800s uh, in today, and that there is a battle going on between the uh, more mainline scientific skeptical skepticism uh, and the more, uh, I'll just say, uh, post-materialist kind of view of uh, consciousness and, and th- those kind of things. And uh, I, I think any time that there's a dichotomy set up, I think we eliminate possibilities. So, but I wonder if that's human nature. You're either on side A or side B, and I always wondered, is there a side C to where we can take <laughs> all of those? D, and, E, uh, F, and G. Huh? Exactly, exactly. So, But, yeah, Ben, I, I totally agree. I think that this is a... Uh, a a repeat, if you will, and, and unfortunately, it's the lines uh, been drawn pretty deeply. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's kind of a paradox, right? You'd think that with with um, sort of the the strides that have been made, especially in in the fields of, of psychology, that you know that that people are well, at least psychologists, and in for, uh, you know, forgive me if I'm wrong, are at least more open to the idea of the anomalous. Than than in 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 previous decades, probably because you know the consciousness research is is a thing now, and perhaps as a as sort of a species we're we're kind of almost ready to deal with it and almost ready to kind of engage what consciousness really means because really you know the only thing we can kind of point to is you know it's not it's non local we know that and that's pretty much all we know. So do you do you think that that this sort of trend is is more of like a rebellion of of a culture to say oh well you know science is great and all but you know it's it's really all about spirit it it, it seems as if that sort of enlightenment period dualism is still very much a thing in our society. Yeah, I totally agree with that and uh if if I, I'm going to make an, a sweeping overgeneralization, is that most people in the field of psychotherapy, uh, and again, I'm saying most, not all, have very little 
uh, working knowledge about the, the, the field of consciousness. Uh, unfortunately, too much of psychotherapy has been rooted in very linear explanations for certain things. So uh, uh, way back when in the psychodynamic Freudian era, it was you're doing and experiencing certain things due to unconscious repressed, you know, uh, drive, sexuality, whatever. And then when the behaviorist came in, it's like, no, 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 you're doing things because you've just been programmed and conditioned. And then the cognitive uh, therapies come in and say, well, you're doing things because you're thinking this way and that's causing you to feel this and then to do that. And then, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Humanistic, it's, you know, you haven't had enough positive regard and, 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 and a healthy self-concept. So we're always looking for this linear way to see A to B to C. But I find that most people don't work that way. And I find that therapists who, who think only in that manner sometimes get stuck uh, when they deal with more complexity. Now, if we talk about consciousness, we're talking about a very complex uh, topic. And uh, looking at this from a, a you know different theories of complexity, I, I think a lot of uh, therapists just don't have enough working knowledge or to understand that. Uh, and, and certainly we are taught in, in graduate school that if someone, one of our clients starts to talk about strange phenomena or experiences, it is unfortunately a knee-jerk pathological, uh, uh, how should I say this, pathological uh, assertion rather than something that may indeed be grounded in their reality. And so we are instantly supposed to diagnose this as being a negative. So I, I think there's a, there's so many different uh, ways to look at this uh, that it can't, for me, it can't be just a either this or either that. And I, I just would like to see more therapists at least having an open mind toward working with, with these kind of ideas. They don't have to believe it. And believe me, I'm very skeptical. But at the same time, I've, what's, what am I dealing with as a, as a human being in front of me as a client? And that's who I need to be working with, not always my preferred theory or technique. Mm. So that being said, uh, let's talk about talk about some cases. What's what is what what are some of these experiences that you've had that that you can point to this and say, well, hey, at least we're engaging it. Well, I've only had me personally. I've only had one experience, um, and I it, it involved a an interaction I had with a long term client, a lady I liked very much, and we had gotten a lot of work. Uh, done in the positive and, but one day she came in and she was really down. Uh, just give you an abbreviated story. She had, uh, was missing her father who had died many years ago and she felt that her father might have been ashamed of her due to her mental health issues. And so in talking to her, I just asked her the casual question. Uh, I said, well, you know, this empty chair beside me, if your father was sitting in this empty chair, right now, what do you think he would say? Now, this is a, a, a pretty typical technique from something like gestalt therapy. But in that moment, the weirdest thing, and I have never experienced this and uh, ha- I mean, since, and I'm, I'm thankful that I haven't, it felt like someone sat in the chair beside me. And hmm. all of a sudden, I started getting these images and things in my head that I didn't know where they were coming from. And out of my mouth came, and I don't, I got an image, two images, 
image of that type of uh, sherbet ice cream that we uh, get a lot of times as kids called a sh- uh, push-up. Uh, you know? oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And then I saw a body of water like a lake. And I heard come out of my mouth to this, this lady. I said, uh, does a push-up ice cream mean anything to you? And her mouth dropped open, and she says, oh, my God, my dad used to always take me to the lake, and he would buy me push-ups. And I'd pretend to put it on like I was putting on lipstick, and we'd both laugh, and that was our thing. And I just was overcome for some weird reason by all this emotion and just started crying and a little bit of shaking and concerned her. And next thing I know, I'm saying, well, your father loves you very much. And, and, and I don't really don't remember much after that. But after, somehow we got through the rest of the session. And uh, like I said, I, I've never had that experience again. And I don't want anyone to think that I am a medium or anything. I do not claim that. But it has, if you'll pardon the pun, it has haunted me for uh, a long time. Why did that happen? Am I the only one that this has happened to? What what are the explanations for this? Because, I mean, where I am in my life now, I'm not ready to believe that uh, a dead person was communicating through me. But that's my belief system now. Uh, So I needed to find some other explanations. And that's what sent me on this this journey. And so when I opened up the floor uh, metaphorically to my colleagues, when I asked for other stories, it was quiet for a while. People were uncertain about what, you know, if they should even say anything. But privately, I started getting more and more email stories. And I realized uh, I'm not the only one that this is happening to. Yeah. Can you give some examples, Paula, of things that you've picked up from other professionals um during sessions that, uh, you know, things that have happened during sessions? Sure. The most common I have found is uh, the occurrence of what, we, what we'll call telepathy. Uh, a lot of people, you know, refer to it as ESP. It's, it's interchangeable. But basically being able to pick up and read someone else's uh, thoughts. And this dates back, though, if um, – we go back even back to Sigmund Freud. Freud was having an issue with telepathy happening so much in his sessions that he eventually uh, came up with this idea that they weren't going to call it telepathy. He referred to it as thought transference, meaning that the thoughts of the patient client were being projected onto the therapist and vice versa. Now, transference is a common psycho analytical term Freud came up with in which the uh, patient will project his or her unconscious material onto the therapist. So a lot of people think that what Freud was trying to do was trying to come up with some, uh, if you'll excuse the term, pseudoscientific term to minimize the esoteric or paranormal aspect of what was happening in his office. And throughout uh, a good bit of the literature, I've read uh, over you know the past hundred years, telepathy seems to be more common of all the different uh, an- anomalous experiences. Uh, one in particular uh, is uh, just uh, many uh, therapists would say things like things just pop into my head. It's it's kind of like they're they're talking about a friend of theirs, and for some reason I'll think of uh, Allison. And uh, I find out in a minute later they mention the friend's name is Allison, and I don't know how that happened. You know, those kind of things are very common. But I don't think that's limited to, obviously, therapy. I mean, uh, couples 
who are, uh, are very close and very connected will often have those uh, things happen. So it may be that that arises as a result of that unconscious connection or interaction within the uh, the therapy room. So I would say the most common would probably be uh, 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 kind of telepathic reports of telepathic uh, occurrences. Other things have been certain uh, sensations that the, the person has felt. Other people have heard things uh, that gives giving them information about the client, like in their inner ear that they thought the client heard and the client didn't hear. Hear. Others have have seen weird, strange things. Had you know, in one case, I remember there was a uh, a client who would repress her emotions. Anytime she'd get upset, she'd swallow her emotions down. Not always a good thing. And then one day, it was such an intense amount of outpouring of emotion when she tried to push it down the lamp that was beside uh the uh, client the therapist watched it just move off not just tip over but slide off almost on its own and fall which that's the case i was thinking of yeah yeah shook the therapist to the uh the core and uh even had the client get up and try to come up with alternative explanations for how a lamp that was heavy that's never been uh moved uh in that way uh, did and so she just came to the conclusion, much like uh, Carl Jung did, that there is when we're under stress, sometimes this um, energy, internal energy, if you will, unconscious energy, can affect things. Kind of what we call uh, uh, psychokinesis, uh, those kind of things. And, and some people have attributed a polter, some poltergeist activity to that. Yes, indeed. I've run into that myself a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the question arises, you know, when this occurred, you know, what do your, your, your reaction uh, to your experience was, was very emotional, understandably so. What do your colleagues do with this when it happens? And, and also, before you even answer that, what percentage of, of the colleagues you've spoken with about this have actually had things of this kind occur? Well, it's it's really difficult for me to to put a percentage. So, like, if I were to do a, a percentage of the field, how what's the percentage? The reason is because, uh, well, number one, I didn't uh, use a standardized measurement and, and send out this mass mailing and uh, for people. But I think the other thing is I I feel a lot of uh, and have been told by a lot of my colleagues. Uh, I've had one in particular who's a very well known colleague who refuses has had something happen but will refuse to tell he told me which i appreciate and i'm honored but uh you know doesn't want anyone else to know so there's such a reluctance i think that the bulk of people who do therapy will never have this happen in the session but i i think it's a small percentage but when it happens man does it happen and as far as what to do with it I think that's the dialogue we, we need to have in our field. When something strange does happen, do we just immediately dismiss it? Do we, uh, you know, think uh, that, you know, look for a rational explanation, which I totally endorse. That should be our first step. But if we can't explain it away, is it something that we discuss with the client? I mean, these are questions that uh, it may be on a case by case basis, but it's, it seems to be very unnerving for so many. That uh, and, and just a reluctance to talk about it. I I don't know if we'll ever get to the point anytime soon to having a um, an agreed upon um, agenda of how to deal with that. Yeah, who are you going to call? You know. Yeah. Well, yeah. I've, I've actually had uh, at least in in my experience three groups of people have the most contact with 
uh, well, particularly poltergeist phenomena, very often the, uh, you know, um, external dramatic uh, paranormal phenomena in general. Uh, police officers, all right, clergy, who half the time don't know what they're doing, and uh, mental health professionals, okay? And I worked with some of them myself uh, in the 70s. And I, I've actually had um, several psychiatric social workers tell me that I'm more skeptical than they are. So yeah. it, it is out there, and it's going on. So absolutely. All right. What? What? Um, we're going to go to a, a question from a listener here. We're going to have a break though, too, uh, in a minute. But you can sort of think of this uh, over the um, course of the break, I guess, Paul. This is from uh, our uh, beloved uh, show reporter uh, out in California, in San Francisco. Uh, Richard and Richard asks uh, he has two questions here. One is um, I'll give it to Ben. Oh. Uh, number one there. Oh, Alrighty. So the first question is, with uh, the schizophrenic patient, uh, what do you think about their sensitivity to the paranormal? Hmm. Well, why don't we take our break first? Yeah. So d- digest that. Uh, Paul can uh, mull that over. Okay. <laughs> All right. Very good. Okay, so you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's paranormally warm, and we'll pay for it over the next three months, Blackstone River Valley. Stick with us. We'll be right back with our great guest, Paul Leslie, on the subject of strange things happening during psychotherapy sessions. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Greg Bell, the host of When Radio Was. I'm Mortimer. Bill. Is that you under that blindfold? Bill. With this thing on, I can't see who I am. No, I imagine not. Can't you see anything at all under that blindfold? On a clear day, I can see the blindfold. You can. When Radio Was, shows from the past for today's imaginations. When Radio Was airs Monday through Friday right here on ON 1240 Radio at 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. Local and live at 99.5 FM. Okay, so we'll um, go back to that question that we that Ben asked before the uh, the break uh, from our show reporter Richard in San Francisco. Uh, what do you think about their sensitivity to the paranormal? Multiple ways to answer that. With uh, people who uh, as the question was involving schizophrenics, uh, people who suffer from uh, some aspects and forms of schizophrenia they would be uh, more susceptible to seeing things and hearing things. But if you're from more of a, uh, a linear materialistic view, you would say, and, and the evidence is there, that generally we're seeing disruption in uh, the manufacturing and, and distribution of uh, dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, which uh, involves our um, muscles, uh, movement, uh, uh, it's a pleasure and reward center, but it also governs perception. So uh, a lot of times they'll say, well, if people are having paranormal experiences, much like some people who have schizophrenia and are, are you know, have some kind of uh, doorway open to seeing things, hearing things, feeling things that aren't there, uh, that may be a disruption in, in, in dopamine. Now, uh, if I could kind of kind of counter that uh, just a little bit it, it just uh, recently i read and it was a journal a scientific journal from holland and i apologize i can't remember the author's name or the title but it stated that the general public overall has at least a couple of uh 
experiences that they would uh, define as a visionary or hearing uh, auditory, hallucinatory experiences, even if it's just one time. So when I was reading that, I was I was thinking, well, if the majority of the population in the course of their life has at least one of those, then to me, this idea of paranormal is maybe we need to investigate that term. Yeah. Uh, because it may be more of the norm, but because of a societal view of, of certain things, it gets pushed aside uh, as into something that is abnormal. Now, in the in the realm of some people with severe schizophrenia, it is abnormal, and I don't mean that as a as a personal judgment on their worth, but just statistically. Um, and uh, you know, they need help. They need to, to find the best treatment available, but. At the same time, uh, a lot of people say, well, something about the brain has changed to where maybe that brain is more of a filter. And the schizophrenic, uh, in some people, the schizophrenic state may be a way that the filter kind of decreases a little bit and lets in information that they see and hear things that's out there that the rest of us wouldn't. But that's one of the bigger debates. Is it just purely issues in the brain or the brain a filter? And when you have these kind of situations, medical issues happen, uh, it kind of uh, uh, pierces the veil a little bit. Okay. And we have a second question from Richard. Uh, ben, if you would. If I would be so kind. Yes. Uh, any thoughts on how frequency, particularly lower frequencies, affect mental health? Uh, should psychiatric patients avoid being near lower frequency areas? Uh, I don't feel I'm qualified to comment on that because I just don't have enough uh, evidence. It is intriguing, though, because obviously frequency does have an impact on our bodies, uh, sound frequencies. And just I I remember reading in my research to where uh, a group of uh, psychologists and uh, geologists, I think it was, went to a certain certain haunted locations uh, uh, in uh, England. And then they measured uh, certain... Uh, frequency of the the earth, you know, there's uh, um, with all the technology they have, and they found that there were subtle changes in certain areas that would uh, proclaim haunted. Now that may be, you know, they use that and say, okay, well, since there's changes, that's affecting our nervous system, and so that's why we're feeling a certain way or experiencing certain things. Uh, again, to equal time, the counter to that is, well, what if there are strange, weird things there that have those frequencies? And that's why uh, you're doing that. So if, if indeed there is something uh, to this kind of idea of how the Earth magnetic and, and all that, it might be something to look into, but I don't feel I'm qualified to, to make that kind of statement either way okay. well it's actually a really great segue into into a question i wanted to bring up because you bring up the the work of mesmer uh and magnetic forces in in the book and it's mm-hmm. it's really fascinating because very even very recently there there have been some studies coming out about how um because mesmer basically is said that they that there is possibly a fluid in in human bodies that sort of generates electromagnetic fields kind of like animal magnetism because right. animals have have a magnetic field around them um and they he sort of you know he did work with mag- magnets that would help with psychiatric treatment and it was really really interesting um because it's because it his recent studies have shown that we as humans do actually respond to the magnetic fields of the earth but i mean it's studies so we don't really know for sure but it's interesting how that kind of comes up now 
with this sort of mag- magnetic um, magnetic fields, let's let's just you know sort of do some hyperbole here and say that's true. I was thinking about the sort of thought transference sort of idea that we brought up earlier in the show. Now, th- therapy is a very very personal activity. There's a lot of sharing, a lot of going back and forth, and you know, in normal conversation, you wouldn't go up to somebody and spill you know, your deepest, darkest secrets. But in a therapy session, there's there's a lot of trust, there's a lot of openness, and there's a lot of connection. Now, this is sort of sort of a, a, a melding of the two ideas. Have you done any sort of research or found that perhaps thought transference in these magnetic fields or animal magnetism would be related in some way, shape, or form? Well, what I was investigating the whole idea of environment uh, of the therapy room. Now, there can be the environmental, the physical environmental aspects, as you know, possibility of frequencies and, and those kind of things. Um, with with a, a physical environment, I would think though that that would be happening more often for therapists. Mm. So what I'm wondering is uh, kind of what you're, you're, you're asking is that is there a certain thing that happens when two individuals come together to create a certain interpersonal environment? Now, we know uh, that our brain has a type of neuron we call uh, mirror neurons, which uh, this is the, the the neuron that where we we feel something just watching someone else do something. For example, if someone happens to stub their toe really hard and we see it and we cringe. Mm. That was our kind of our neural uh, seeing that happen, and, and then we feel what it would feel like, and our body reacts even though we weren't that person having that. If we're doing that, then at this deep interpersonal level, there may indeed be. Some kind of uh, inter, interpersonal grid, if you will, of uh, unconscious information and connection, but it only is able to happen if the uh, we're just use a term we just use frequency of the two people are there. I mean, I have no evidence to support that, but it makes me wonder why is it when I if I, in that situation that one time I had, why was it that one person and not all the many other people? That have had very that have had wonderful working relationships with and, and felt and liked a lot and had it that deep. So it may be that the setting, it may be that the connection of the two, and it may just be the uh, the timing. I mean, uh, if if anyone reads the uh, the recent uh, expose on uh, in the Ameri- the journal American Psychologist, where there's huge meta analysis of the field of of um, Psychical research, it's hard to, if you're really, you know, scientifically honest and look at the research, it's hard to dismiss that uh, everything is bogus. So but then the question is, well, why does it happen sometimes and why does it not happen? You know, it's kind of the, you know, you say to a psychic, well, if you're a psychic, you should be right every time. And I, I would like that. To be, I would like that to be true, but I'd also like that to be applied to medical doctors and <laughs> mm-hmm. auto mechanics and engineers, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's, radio it's talk actually, show hosts. Yeah, exactly. Well, that actually is a really interesting point because that kind of brings up the scientific method as a whole, right? That, you know, ironically, science is an ever-changing field, but the scientific method has not changed at all. And especially when it comes to to sort of the cognitive sciences, 
that you know sometimes these these behaviors and us being you know paranormal investigators working in the field it it doesn't always happen the same way twice and trying to negotiate that sort of gap between the phenomena and the science of it and trying to establish patterns when the patterns are ever changing now how would you approach your um your colleagues in in this i mean you already have basically with these experiences you know that they happen but establishing that they are that they are actually happening and being able to repeat it is is that a problem that you're running into oh absolutely i mean certainly and and for the record i think the scientific method is is possibly one of the greatest creations in in human history there's so many wonderful things have come out of the scientific method, and I, I think it, it is exceptional. Uh, I, I, the only thing I, I'm having issues with is when people who don't really understand what the scientific method is kind of view it more as in, you see this a lot, I believe in science, says someone. Well, you know, it's as one of my colleagues says, that's like saying, I believe in a hammer. You know, it's, <laughs> It's a process that we do, and unfortunately, when things are are, are are so fluctuating, it is difficult. So in order to do a study to where we would show that, we'd have to get uh, the same people every time in a, in a, in a controlled setting. And I think uh, psychical research has seen that even though if you read that meta-analysis from the American psychologist, there has been significant findings. However, it's it's very difficult, and I don't even know if having those controlled conditions might even eliminate the possibility of those things happening because then the intimacy, the connection, the interpersonal uh, uh, interaction might be lost doing more laboratory-esque uh, setting. Then that begs the question, does the personal connection almost negate the evidence? Hmm. That's an interesting way to, to, to think. A good question there. Um, well, if you're in the moment uh, of doing your therapy uh, and you're the therapist, uh, the personal experience is all you have. Mm. And so if this is happening and both parties know it's happening – uh, it's a good idea to, to have some kind of working plan, regardless of, of what's truly happening. Because if your client believes something's happening and it's not something that is clearly, you know, magical thinking to the point to where, you know, it's kind of a pathology there, I think it's something we, we need to address. You know, it's funny. I read a study out of, um, I think it was a couple of years ago, out of the U.K., I think Roxbow was the lead uh, author on it, and it stated that most therapists over there actually requested, uh, when asked on a questionnaire, more training in how to deal with the possibility if strange things happen, or even if the client comes in and says, I have these weird experiences, I don't know what to do with them. We can't uh, dismiss, too, that, I mean, you turn on any uh, cable network now, you, you have so many paranormal shows, uh, some that are uh, entertaining and maybe educational, some that are outright, in my opinion, uh, harmful. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, it shapes our culture. Mm -hmm. So maybe someone isn't having a paranormal experience, but due to media, they, they believe they are. Well, rather than shut them down and dismiss them, 
why not honor where they're coming from and using our skills to maybe learn to either how to deal with it or to figure out that maybe it might not be paranormal and the person can grow rather than an automatic jump to that something's wrong with them, uh, they have a pathology, or this is just a bunch of, of nonsense, uh, or just not talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we have another question from a listener here, although it's it's in German. Uh, we have listeners in 53 countries uh, with our <laughs> posting of, of the recorded shows. <laughs> However, um, she does uh, wish us a frohes neues Jahr, Happy New Year. Mm-hmm. But my German is rusty, and I'm not going to tag. I'll, I'll, I'll translate this, and we can deal with it at a uh, later date. Okay, so... Okay. Uh, thank you, Rosaline, for saying. Anyway, we'll we'll deal with that. Okay, so let's get into a little bit of non-locality here. Uh, non-locality is uh, generally an understanding in sort of in physics and, and uh, by extension into consciousness studies as well. And it essentially means, <laughs> at least as I understand it, that everything you are, your memory, uh, your imagination, even even your yourself, really is not contained in your body necessarily it's it's shared and this gets into a little bit about carl jung and his idea of the collective unconscious could you talk a little bit about that paul and, and how it might apply to everything we, we've been discussing as far as these experiences and, and even physical happenings sure uh as you were saying the idea that um there's two ways to to look at this, and again, we're, we're back to the A and B instead of C, D, E, and F, but uh, the first way is that consciousness, awareness, all of that is created only by the, the physical aspect of the brain, and the, the other side is that consciousness is primary, and then the brain is kind of our receiving tool, so our, our consciousness doesn't end uh, when the brain ceases to function or has problems functioning. Uh, even going back to William James, who, who had a, a view of, he felt most everything had a, a form of consciousness. He called this panpsychism. And he felt that the brain, much like I mentioned before, was a receiving instrument. And there's a filter that allowed uh, a protection from our awareness of so many other uh, things. So to do our day-to-day, get up, you know, cook dinner, go, you know, play with the kids, go to work, all of that, you only need a limited amount of consciousness. When something happens to our brain, whether it's a, a, a trauma, whether it is a, a, a hallucinogenic uh, drugs, uh, whatever experience, a shock, that uh, that filter starts to, to open up a little bit and things start to come in from this uh, this perspective that, that James and many other uh, renowned scientists uh, believe. If the if consciousness is non-local, I'm saying if because I'm not uh, going to say anything uh, definitive here. Uh, it would certainly explain why, it, it, like I have a story in one of my uh, uh, therapist. Uh, Archives where, where they're talking about how uh, this one therapist kept getting an image over and over throughout the day, a feeling of, of dread about a client that they hadn't seen in six months. And then later that day or the next day, uh, the client calls and says, I've just, you know, I've lost my mother. I'm just, you know, having just overwhelmed with grief. How soon can I get in to see you? Well, if the way to explain that, other than it's just coincidence, which to me is kind of an, in that situation, that's uh, kind of an empty uh, way to answer why that happened. 
if the mind is, is non-local and it's connected to this grid of consciousness, maybe due to the intensity, going back to what we talked about, the relationship, when something happens, the therapist picked up on it, much in the way the, the mother knows something happened to, the, to her child, even though the child's in another state, grown person, and you know they don't talk too often. So I, I think that is uh, a feasible way to, to see that when we are interacting in a therapy room and that deep level of connection and rapport, that maybe there is that melding of consciousness, uh, that connection. You know, in, in quantum, they talk about the uh, uh, the um, the uh, oh gosh entanglement. Uh, you know, where quantum entanglement exactly right, and yeah. maybe that's something consciousness wise that that happens as a result of that deep connection that that people have well we well actually let's take a moment here for you to talk about your website your work your books and uh, let people know where they can find out more about you and get the books Okay, great. Thank you. Yes, my website's drpaulleslie.com. It's mostly a site for my uh, therapy and my trainings. I also have a link there for my books. Uh, if you just go to all the usual cast of characters, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and just type in Paul Initial J. Leslie, uh, most of my stuff uh, comes up. Good. Okay. But to return to what we were talking about, if I may um, make so bold as to perhaps uh, suggest an interpretation to your experience, uh, your uh, you know, for lack of a better term, a pseudo-mediumistic experience with with the client. Uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> if you look at, I guess, quantum entanglement, we don't use that term a lot, but it applies. Uh, we, as you know, you know, we know each other pretty well. We, we had to invent a whole new, really, glossary of terms just to talk about some of our weird concepts. Right. One of these is uh, identity point, uh, where uh, consciousness in our experience, at least being shared, you would have a point where you and another being, might not even be human, w- would share an identity. Uh, so, and I, I think this is what I was seeing during possession and exorcism cases back in the 70s. Uh, it didn't seem that something had come in and taken over. It seemed that something had established its point of identity with th- this other personality. Mm-hmm. And it was not a good situation. So perhaps uh, I might suggest one possibility is that when you were having that experience with the client, you had reached the identity point where you were her father, who was perfectly alive in many, many other versions and parallel realities, I mean, if that theory is correct. That's just one one suggestion that, uh, that, that we would have. Uh, I don't know, Ben, if you want to add to that. No, no, I think I think you nailed it. All right, well, thank you. At least somebody has uh, one down. <laughs> you have my so, support, Father. Oh, thank you. So that, but that's, that's just one one thought. I don't know if you had any comment on that or not. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, just from a, a psychological perspective, maybe uh, her desire to have her father unconsciously, you know, another way to look at it, you're talking about that point, I became the father unconsciously, and information out of her awareness, you know, was or, uh, filled that grid. Between sure, us, and yeah. somehow that 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 came in. So we could look at I became her father from a quantum level. I became her father from a uh, depth psychotherapy level, or, or possibly who knows? You know. Sure. So uh, I have addressed groups of psychiatrists. I know it's not quite what you do, uh, but it's similar. I, I, actually, what is the difference between a psychotherapist and a psychiatrist for people who might not know? 
Well, in today's world, most uh, psychotherapists uh, do psychotherapy, and most psychiatrists do uh, primarily psychopharmacology, so medication. Precisely, yeah. Yeah. I think it some, was drug some psychiatrists do therapy, but most of them uh, stick to just the uh, the meds. Yeah, that, that's my understanding. Uh, I've ag- I've addressed groups of psychiatrists uh, twice in the past, mm-hmm. uh, some years ago, and I've suggested the notion uh, of non-locality, and that when I worked in mental hospitals, you know, albeit as a theology student and philosophy, you know, not as a, although I was I did minor in psychology, uh, but on the undergraduate level, <clears throat> that uh, they they were. Times when I would look into the eyes of a schizophrenic, uh, for example, and there would be such knowing look in return, and it seemed as it, I just became convinced that at least some of these people were actually in touch with worlds that really existed, mm-hmm. and that there were many times when I thought that, that the staff at the hospital ought to be the patients and vice versa, <laughs> because uh, I don't think I ever worked with one of them that didn't have a messed up uh, personal life and all this kind of you know yeah. goofy things going on so but that was me yeah. so um i don't know i just yeah. thought that uh, when i've addressed groups of psychiatrists on this and said uh, you know i think these people may be in touch with actual worlds you know the steam comes out of the ears and the eyes turn red and uh, at the end however uh a number of them would come up privately and say you know i've sometimes i've suspected the same thing but if i said that i lose my job how much politics is involved yeah. in all this tons Tons of politics. You you probably, if you're a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a therapist or any of that field, you probably don't want to uh, have it get out and about that you are having a lot of strange experiences or you believe things of a supernatural or even a religious nature because that's the antithesis of uh, the field, the scientific field. I remember talking with someone who was a, a uh, wasn't a psychiatrist, was like a, a nurse practitioner, but specialized in, in mental health. And uh, this person was saying something that they had developed this belief about uh, 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 parasites. If uh, I guess that's the term, a parasitic. Yeah, as we, as we, uh, we talked therapy. about many times, um, yeah. You know, yeah, and as as an aside, I see that our our mutual friend, the great Murray Silver, will be on your show talking about oh, this yeah, kind of thing. Exactly. Yes. And I think yeah. that'll be uh, entertaining. A yeah. couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, that'll that'll be yeah. great. So, but uh, this person truly believed that. So, um, I, I, it's hard to say, but I, I think it's probably just to be blunt, it's probably professional suicide to talk too much about. Uh, those things, if you are wanting acceptance of your peers and maybe um, further development in the field, because then you'll just be that crackpot that they go, well, he or she was really, you know, really cooking for the first decade, but then they went off the deep end and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you get yeah. kind of sent to the uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, old folks home metaphorically. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Well, in uh, working at Augensburg State Hospital in New York in the 70s, uh, in the context of working with a, a priest, uh, there were um, extreme measures taken to keep things secret, uh, particularly in the case of exorcisms, you know. And there was always a doctor present, two attendants, including myself, uh, two nurses, and the priest, and the patient, of course. Uh, mm. And, and the, it's just... Um, and the rumors still got out. I mean, there were 
we were not allowed to associate with one another socially outside of the room. Uh, the attendant I was working with, I knew his first name, not his last name, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and of course, it, it would be precisely, as you say, professional suicide for the doctor or, or any of the healthcare professionals to even hint that they've been involved in anything like this. But when, you know, when stuff started flying off the shelves, uh, obviously this, that's not the, uh, um, the patient's, uh, you know, psychiatric condition or psychosis causing that, you know, directly. So, uh, that's when they'd call in Father Lawrence. But anyway, uh, that, that really rang true, uh, so many years ago, and I'm sure it still does in the sense of, uh, <clears throat> maintaining one's professional integrity. Excuse me. <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, I think our field uh, often forgets who the most important person in the therapy room is, and that's the client. And we don't have to agree with our client's assertions of what is causing, uh, you know, if they're experiencing paranormal phenomena, if they believe that there are ghosts in their home or they're having psychic uh, experiences. We don't have to agree with that, but I think it is of the utmost nature that we respect their model of the world because I think that's the only way we're going to help people. And if we are instantly so rigid in our view that, you know, well, telling the client, well, obviously you got a mental health problem or now that doesn't exist. We not only uh, block the potential that strange things could happen, but we block the potential to help people heal and change. Because if we're, uh, if our thoughts and feelings are marginalized by somebody who is a, considered an expert, but we know we're experiencing these things, uh, I think that's that's can be very detrimental to. Uh, uh, the client. Uh, I have a, a case, I, a real quick one I mentioned in the, my book where a young girl who's experiencing paranormal phenomena after uh, going to a therapist for a few sessions about the divorce of her parents discloses that and then the therapist immediately calls the mother to request that the girl be put on medication. Mm. And then surprised when the mother says, what are you talking about? We're all experiencing that here. You know, and so... Again, I'm not saying that that stuff is really happening, but maybe instead of a knee-jerk response, we meet the client where they are, mm-hmm. and then we kind of go from there, because that, okay. to me, in any situation, is probably the best way to handle it. Very good. Well, we're out of time, and Dr. Paul Leslie, thank you again. We're always in touch off the air, so we'll be talking to you, and thanks again. Oh, guys, thanks again for having me. It's always a real pleasure. Okay. So let's go to our announcements, folks. Uh, we have, uh, on February 15th, we make our appearance at the 5th Annual Book Lovers and Authors Expo uh, on Saturday, uh, 1 to 4, uh, 15th as I say, at the uh, Cumberland Public Library, 1464 Diamond Hill Road, Cumberland, Rhode Island. Uh, on April 4th and 5th, we'll be at the New England Parafest at the Community Center in Kittery, Maine. Uh, and we plan to do a live broadcast from there on the 5th, uh, and so stay tuned for more details as that date approaches. And we'll be back at the Exeter UFO Festival on Labor Day weekend, that's uh, September 5th and 6th, as speakers, and to do our 5th uh, annual live broadcast from the historic Exeter Town Hall on Sunday the 6th at noon. The event is sponsored by the Exeter Area Kiwanis Club to raise funds for local children's charities. Okay, and there are lots of other events coming up as well. So you can also check out our books, including Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, and Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You've Never Heard of. And now, Dancing Past the Graveyard, uh, Poltergeist, 
Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God, and they're available from online retailers and in some stores. Uh, but for autographed copies, please visit our online bookstore at BehindTheParanormal.com. Okay. We are out of uh, faces at the window, though, by the way, but that will be remedied. Uh, check out our charity page on the website as well, and uh, that will include lots of charities that are really good that we've checked out ourselves. Uh, again, BehindTheParanormal.com. What do we have for next week, Ben? So next week, uh, that is uh, the Sunday, the January 19th, we will bring you another one of our famous Open Lion shows with special guest co-host Shane Searway. And you had a word about Apple iTunes. Yes. So if you are listening to us on Apple iTunes, please uh, subscribe to our podcast. Give us a rating as well uh, and leave a review. It helps us get our grow our podcast, and it also helps uh, get into sort of the circulation of other podcasts on Apple iTunes. Okay. So uh, I guess we don't have time for our quote, but uh, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.